Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Boston Loose Baseball Episode 7. Grant Paulson, Danny Ruye, producer Darius Dameron. On this episode, we will break down Evan Lee, the double-A lefty just called up to make his pitching debut for the Nats on Wednesday afternoon. John Heyman says that Juan Soto's not going anywhere. We'll dive into that. Steven Strasburg's second rehab start way better than his first. We've got some thoughts and some bad news on the Joe Ross front. He will have Tommy John surgery. We will not see him this season. Plus, we look ahead to the trade deadline and what is going to be a busy Boston Loose Baseball, so let's get it popping. This is Boston Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. This is Boston Loose Baseball. Grant, Danny, and Darius with you. Your trio back for episode seven. Let's go around the room. Gentlemen, how are we? Nats, five and five in their last ten. We call that improvement. That's 500 ball. It's This is close to what I thought they would be before the season started. You're not going to get consistent starting pitching. You're not a first division club, but you'll have a couple weeks where you slug it a little bit, right? Where you, you know, you're middle of your order, which is a bunch of pro hitters, and you add Caber Ruiz into that, who certainly looks the part, but Nelson Cruz and Josh Bell and Juan Soto get some extra base hits. You put some crooked numbers up. You can win some seven, six ball games here and there. This, that group that they were for the first month plus guys, where they're playing three thirty three baseball, throwing it around, leading the world in errors. Seems like it's better now. Not good. Nobody's saying good, but better. I, I kind of think they'll settle into this sort of channel here going forward. I think if you're going to go into a full rebuild or, or some sort of a uh, rebuild, I just want to have a little bit of fun along the way. And this weekend was fun. Seeing the team hit multiple home runs in games, that's something that we haven't gotten at various portions throughout this season so far. So I'm fine with weekends like that, you know, even if it comes with getting uh, spanked by the Mets afterwards. (laughs) 
the spanking will be there. This, they play the Mets more times. There'll At be some more spanking. Point, oh, so, goodness. Someone's going to put you over top of their leg, and they're going to say, pull your pants down, and they're going to go, whack! 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 It's going to happen, right, Danny? Pretty much. Um, that was, by the way, I think it was a Pete Alonzo, a little Jeff McNeil right there, just drilling balls into the gap. Just a bludgeoning. All right, that got violent, so let's reel and it a back weird. in here. Got a little bit strange. Uh, but, yes, the Nat series is ongoing. We are taping on Tuesday evening here. So they're about to play the Mets again, game two of this series. We're going to be looking ahead and talking some bigger picture things. So hopefully not a lot of what we talk about is dated, but I will say to Darius's point, they took three out of four from the Rockies. They took four out of five at one point, four and one going into their series with the Mets because they had that shutout win over the Dodgers, the first team to shut the Dodgers out all year long. Fetty was fantastic, obviously got rocked by the Mets subsequently since, but uh, that was great to see. We were at the ballpark at Silly Seats, Darius. That was great. And by the way, Danny, before we, we get to some of the, the things on the rundown today, Darius mentioned actual home runs were hit. How about the fact? That this team only homers on Saturday, basically. They're it's uncanny. As of this weekend, their last home runs hit were Saturday. I don't remember the exact dates, but let's say it's like uh, let me let me look at a calendar here. The 14th against the Astros. Then they went seven days where they didn't hit one. Then May the 21st, 21st against the Brewers. <laughs> then they went seven days where they didn't hit one. And then the 28th against the Rockies. Like, that should not happen in Major League Baseball. Aaron Judge is homering nine times a week. He's homering four times an inning. The Nationals homer every Saturday. It's so strange. <laughs> it's your weekly home run appointment. Just like, weird Soto's stuff. Soto's got man. eight, and no yeah. one else has more than four on the team. It's just weird. Uh, that's all. It, that's, these things won't continue. Nelson Cruz will start elevating the baseball as things warm up. He'll hit. More homers are going to be hit, but I'm telling you, it's one of those. It's emblematic of kind of where they are and the inconsistency of a team that, that's trying to build. All right, so let's go through the items on the to-do list here. I want to start with Evan Lee because he is going to make his debut. Now, call me a weirdo or a sucker. This is what I live for. I love the minor league player getting called up to make their debut during the rebuild. And in this case, this is the 17th best prospect in the system. Not a particularly highly regarded guy by all the prospects outlets. He's a lefty. He's been pitching at AA Harrisburg. He was on the 40-man roster. He's 6'1 and 200. 10 pounds. Again, was never really highly regarded. Was a 15th round pick back in 2018. Drafted outside of the top 450 in his own draft class. But he had a lot of success. Had a power conference. Was a two-way player at the University of Arkansas before the Nats saw him as a pitcher and took him. And he's moved through the system at a decent clip here. You're talking about less than four years later. He's making his major league debut, making the leap from double A, probably because he's on the 40 man, but we will get to see him in a day game on Wednesday. I've got a bunch of thoughts on the repertoire and the arsenal from just talking to people in the organization, but am I crazy that this is the kind of thing that excites me? Because look, I know he's not a great prospect and like a few years from now, there's a good chance he's not a big league rotation piece. But sometimes these outlets are wrong. Like MLB Pipeline, uh, Baseball America, Prospectus. I do this stuff all the time where I'm studying all those charts. And I know just from talking to people in the Nats org, like they completely disagree with where some of these guys are ranked. So sometimes someone's great and we don't know it until we see him. And and maybe Evan Lee could start to solidify himself as a back-end starter for them for years to come. Again, you keep throwing things at the wall to see if it sticks, right? I mean, you you could see why they were intrigued. As you mentioned, a two-way player at a a 
power school at a great conference. Uh, obviously, there's some athleticism there. So he's he's not a refined pitcher to the degree that some of these other guys are that have thrown hundreds and hundreds of innings before they end up on a minor league roster somewhere. So he's still kind of learning the craft. But there's some stuff here, as you talked about, kind of a you know kind of big nasty curveball to go with the fastball that rides a little bit as a lefty. There's some reasons to be excited. Again, nobody's telling you that the second coming. This isn't a Steven Strasburg style debut. This is a guy that's, you know, was okay at A plus last year, right? With an ERA in the low fours. He's thrown a little bit better at double A Harrisburg. Just shows you as he's adapting to the level. No, you know, ascending isn't too much for him uh here at this point. So he's thrust into a pretty tough spot going up to New York to pitch against the Mets lineup that averages two hundred and seventy seven thousand runs per game against the Nationals this year, numbers approximate. But it's one of those fun things. You're right. I don't, I probably don't get as geeked up as you do, but it is exciting because the downside, oh, it didn't work. You're back in the minors. He's one of your 4A arms that comes up sometimes. You go, oh, I remember that guy. He made a start a couple years ago. Or if he kind of hits the ground running, you go, maybe this is a new asset. But this is the time to figure that sort of stuff out. Well, make no mistake. I'm not pretending like this is Cade Cavalli or this is Cole Henry. Like your top arms, your top prospects, there's a different level of excitement when it's Lucas Giolito Day and he's graduating or Soto or Robles gets to the show. He's not that. But as a guy that just I've tracked this year at the minor league level and I'm looking up all of his starts, it's kind of cool that instead of turning on the TV and seeing Patrick Corbin again or Eric Fetty or whatever it is, you're going to see one of these guys just to you know get a little look-see and see if, if, the, if he's ready and what he's got. Uh, let's talk repertoire for him, what you're going to see. So the fastball, I was told, is mostly like 90 to 93 can touch a four or a five occasionally. But for the most part, expect him to be 92, 93 miles per hour, somewhere around there. Big looping curveball. High 70s breaking ball. So I was told it's basically two pitches. Fastball, curveball. Fastball, top of the zone. High spin rate. You know, four seam. Think Sean Doolittle kind of like elevated. Uh-huh. Lefty where it, 93 looks more like 96 ideally on a good day. That's that's what you're looking for with that spin rate. Uh, the big breaking ball, hopefully from you know similar tunnel, similar release point. So you get people swinging over the top of that pitch. I was told, uh, and I hit up our guy Cole Henry, who we had on the podcast, uh-huh. that he also will occasionally mix in a changeup. But essentially, this is two pitches. Now, I know that a lot of places, including MLB Pipeline, says he, he's mixed in a cutter for left-on-left stuff. I don't know how often he uses that. I guess we'll get to see that in a game against the Mets here on Wednesday. But basically, fastball, curveball, not ideal because you want to have more to be able to go to. But if he throws a few cutters that are good, if he throws a few change-ups. Just enough. Exactly. Then I Look, Josiah Gray is essentially pitching without a change-up, but he's got such a good curveball, such a good slider, that he really has three above-average better pitches. But in this case, Evan Lee has two pitches that are big league average or better, probably a hair above it. Certainly, you know, with the high-spin fastball. And the curveball. You need to give people just enough. It doesn't have to be even 10% of your, of your deliveries. It has to be just one other thing to kind of get you off those two main things. And that combo of the high-riding fastball and kind of a – it's on a full 12-6, but that's sort of a breaking ball – can be really, really effective on hitters because what you're doing is you're, you're, their eye line goes one way, right? A fastball up, fastball up, fastball up, and you kind of get used to seeing that. Then what looks like a fastball up out of the hand, you know – basically sprint straight downward, which is kind of that 12-6 action on that curveball. So then you see enough of those curveballs, and all of a sudden you're looking for that, and that riding fastball that you kind of alluded to just all of a sudden takes off, and 92 plays like 95, 96, and even beyond. That's where a guy like that can be effective. It's a 
a tightrope that he's got to walk a little bit uh, when it comes to it, especially if you're really only going to major in two pitches because guys know bases loaded, two out, 3-2 count, you're not going to your third pitch, right? It's going to be one of those other two. So you really got to be precise there and, and keep the same tunnel, that arm tunnel, the thing that you just mentioned, GP, critically important for somebody like that as he's learning how to pitch here in, in you know, kind of your, I think it's your four for him in pro baseball, really doing this full time. So it's it's an interesting combo of pitches, I would say, for a guy that's trying to get get you through the lineup a couple different times. To me, profiles as a reliever. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, probably so. Just based on again, it's it's a couple of pitches, but you know, I, I want to see him more. I mean, some guys like Clayton Kershaw early in his career was mostly two pitches. That's a good now, point. I'm not comparing those two dudes. Evan Lee is Clayton Kershaw. <laughs> Grant, time timestamp that, Darius. <laughs> Stop it right now. That is not a thing. But you get what I'm saying. Like two pitches for some guys, you can do that. You can get by. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that are factors. But yeah, I, I would say just based on you know the velocity and you know the draft status and a lot of the things that are out of his control, there's a better chance than not that he's not in the road on a first division team long term but you know he made seven starts in double a this year he pitched 30 innings 37 strikeouts to 25 hits that's really really impressive Uh, average against in the 220s I like that whip a little bit over one I I can get in on that now my one issue is that he's walked more guys than I'd prefer he has 15 walks in 30 innings which at the big league level four and a half walks per nine is high but it's not alarming my concern is if you're walking four and a half guys per nine in double a what does that become when you are yep. at the major league level? Lower chase. Exactly. Yeah. Like, dudes are spitting on pitches. You're nervous. I mean, think about that. Like, I remember David Price telling me, I interviewed him after his debut, and he said, I got out to the mound and my knees were shaking. That was literally, this is a 1-1 pick out of Vanderbilt, top prospect in the game at one point, gets called up by the Rays to pitch out of the pen in a playoff chase. And What would this have been like? 2008, I think, when they went to the World Series. And he said his knees were actually shaking. That's how some guys feel on the hill. And if you sometimes struggle to locate in the minors at the AA level, that transition can be difficult. So I just hope he gets the ball over the plate and allows the fastball-curveball combination to work. But cannot wait to see him. Again, if you're listening to this on Tuesday night, he has already thrown, so hopefully it wasn't too disappointing. Uh, But if you're listening to this before the game, Looking forward to Evan Lee, see how long he, uh, with his spot start, can carve out possibly a spot in this rotation. Long gone! Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
want to talk about what John Heyman said about Juan Soto. So before we get into this conversation, let's let you guys hear what John Heyman had to say. This was on a podcast much like this one. John Heyman on Juan Soto staying put. You know, every week we've done this, and I keep <laughs> saying, you know, I don't think Soto will be traded. Soto probably will not be traded. Well, now I can tell you that I'm hearing from people around baseball that the Nats people have told people Soto will not be traded. That's what they're saying, so don't hold me to it, but I know that is what they're saying. You know what? We know the Nats are for sale, and I think you mentioned a caveat on the show last week or the week before that you know, potentially there could be an owner who'd want a clean slate and want his own team. I have heard that there are many bidders. They're going to do very well. They are going to sell the team. And every bidder to a man to this point says they want Soto on the team. Could have gone the other way. I understand. I think your point was a valid one at the time. But my understanding is they have told people Soto is staying. So the best player who potentially could be traded, who we've speculated on, will stay in Washington, barring some bizarre thing happening. I always give it that little caveat there, but Soto staying. So that was John Heyman, and actually that was from his podcast out of New York, right, Darius? Yeah, yeah, that was on the show with Joel Sherman and for the New York Post. Okay, cool. So where should we go with this, I guess, is the, the question, Danny. I, I, let's start here. Soto is not getting traded this year, and you and I have talked about this on Grant and Danny. We talked about it when it was in the the big news cycle spin because of the Buster Olney piece where one rival executive said the Nats should be fielding calls on Juan Soto. We talked about the idea that at some point there is probably going to have to be a conversation about trading Juan Soto. You're unlikely to re-sign him because he's advised by Boris. He's going to go to the market. He's going to get record money. And if you can't re-sign this guy ahead of the market, then it is only prudent and practical, and it makes sense that you would trade him. But with two-plus years left on his deal, there's no reason to do that now. They're not going to trade Juan Soto this year. So that part of it, to me, is not newsy. I know John Heyman is a newsbreaker or reporter, but for him to say Juan Soto's not going to be traded, to me, that's a nothing burger. Of course he's not going to be traded. Who could they trade him to? What package of players could they even get back that would make any sense? There's no precedent for trading a guy of his caliber this far from free agency. Because try to find a trade partner who would be willing to give up what it would take, which is like four or five of your top prospects. No one's going to do that. You'd have to involve multiple teams. You'd have to have just the a high wire act. It would be a carnival ride to try to figure out who, who could possibly make that kind of a deal. So I, I'm with you in the sense that a rival executive, which kind of spawned the Buster Only story here from a, you know, a few weeks ago, Nobody did anything wrong there. I know some people would you know, roll their eyes and say, it's just clickbait. Well, this rival executive told them that. That's something that's on the minds of a lot of fan bases, a lot of other executives. They're salivating watching the Nationals lose three out of every four early on in the season and basically saying, hey, this, you know, we know he may not be able to be there for a couple years. Our window is right now. Let's start talking about these sorts of things. Where the rubber's going to meet the road, there's going to be an intersection where – the price comes down enough because the amount of time left on the superstars contract to point of no return for the Nationals, knowing that they won't be able to resign him, and you still got to get the most that you can possibly get, etc. And then that's where you have to make that kind of really, really difficult, challenging decision. What, what I've said all along is my first choice, my second choice, my top seventy-seven choices are all Juan Soto plays in Washington D.C. forever. I take my kids to Nationals games, and they know they're going to see Juan Soto. Fifteen years, five hundred million, handed to him. Uh, that's my first, second, third, fourth, and fourteenth choice. Realistically, I b- happen to believe that because he's rep by Scott Boris, 
Any offer will be met with a thank you. That's now the starting point for anybody else that wants in, in on the bidding. Right? Come free agency, come multiple years from now. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll like in other words, you make him the offer today, no matter what it is, you're saying it doesn't matter because he just pockets that, and then he tells other teams, this is what we have right now. Yeah, this this is just the beginning. And knowing that in a, in a year when they come knocking on your door, it's not going to go down. The Boris playbook is basically you give him an offer, and he says, thank you very much, and then you don't hear from him. And then you panic and you up your offer because he doesn't tell you that other teams are offering. He just stays silent. He plays that patient game. He's unbelievable at it, and he gets more and more and more and more money from his clients, right, or for his clients. So to me, the Nationals are kind of in this – Damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of a situation where obviously your fan base is going to be bitterly disappointed if you can't retain Juan Soto because because of what happened with the backdrops of Rendon and Harper and Turner and all the others. Who that, wasn't that have a gone Boris away. guy, which is why right. when the team goes, hey, listen, it's tough. You know, Scott Boris, you know, he, he likes to go to the market. OK, that explains Harper. OK, that explains Rendon. Okay, that explains Soto. But you have had a chance with a non-Boris guy and you screwed that up, too. So it's hard for me then to say it's all about Boris. Right. Because you could have paid Trey Turner two years before it was too late, and you wouldn't have had to trade him last year, and he would just be midway through a massive contract or, or you know, 40% through a huge contract right now as he gets closer to 30 years old. That's what they should have done. But they never start those negotiations early enough because they don't want to pay more than they have to sooner in these contracts. Mm-hmm which is how you get the discount on the back end and how you get these non-Boris guys, at least, under contract. Indeed. So now that all the water's under the bridge, the fan base is where it's at after the 2019 joyride. Now you've been punched in the gut with whether it's pandemic, uh, among the worst in history winning percentages of year of, of teams following a World Series championship. 99% of the teams that win a World Series don't finish under 500 again for the next several seasons. The Nationals are going to have their third straight year in all likelihood well under 500. That, you know, circumstances changed. They had the sell-off last year, but they were going to finish under 500 last year. So the backdrop is we're going to be really disappointed if you can't keep him. But you may not be able to. It may, just, it may be out of your control this time, right? It may be that you could offer him the greatest offer that's ever been offered, and they say, thank you so much. We can't wait to go to the bidding because that's our goal. It takes two to tango. The, the part for them that I think is just so impossibly challenging, and I think it's a, of their own creation, talking about the Nationals and ownership and, and where they are, is they've now got themselves in this really difficult, challenging box where I don't know that there's a quote-unquote good solution. It's the the analogy well, used all the time is, is, is Argo. Pay him, but I but but you, but I'm coming into this with the idea that if you offer him something, he'll just say thanks. So here's where I would disagree with that. I think for the most part you're right in that when they offered him the 350 million, mm-hmm. which has been reported by, thanks for Lugo or somebody else, that's what they did. It, there is a contract I believe you could offer him now that he would accept. Again, he's two full years away Mm -hmm. from free agency after the season ends. And you're seeing him struggle on a bad team right now where he's hitting 230-plus. If you offered him today, they won't. So we're wasting our breath and it's nonsensical to talk about, especially before they sell the team. But if you offered him 15 years and $500 million, 1,000% Scott Boris would accept that offer. 1,000%. There's no way he wouldn't. You look at what Tatis got. It blows that out of the water. You, you He could get hurt tomorrow and never play again. You know, he, he could get hurt tomorrow, his shoulder or something, or break a handmade bone and lose power that never comes back or something. So to shatter every record with, like, $500 million, 
not even a debate like he'd accept that. So the question is, where do you walk that line back to where it's a point of no return where he has to accept it? Could you do that for 430, for 440, for 470? I don't know. But I know if you went to him right now and said, here's 15 and 500, that deal's done. They just would never in a million years do that. Having said that, I want to talk about the ownership part of this because that was the other part of the Heyman comment. Yeah, that's, just the, that's the central part to me. So he basically said that to a man or a woman, we don't know who the owner that they're talking to about selling is, they all want Soto on the team. Let's just take him at his word and say that he's right. He's got a decent enough batting average. Get some stuff right, get some stuff wrong. But let's say they all want Soto. What do you make out of that? Like, what do you take from that? To me, they're worth the most money in a sale with Juan Soto as part of the team who could be the biggest star in baseball in any given season when he's going right. Beyond that, though, if you are a new owner, you, as, as you heard Heyman refer to, I, I guess it was Sherman who had, the, had this point. Like, you, even let's say you don't want to pay Soto. You want that asset because I take over the team. He doesn't take the fair offer I offer him. I now flip him and rebuild my entire organization with two pitchers who throw 98 in someone's system and two starters in the infield and the outfield. Like To me, it's a no-brainer that he's going to be on the team when they sell. But he said they're definitely selling. They got a bunch of bidders going to do really well. Like That was the newsy thing to me there. Yeah, but so then as, as it applies to Soto, is that a under the current contract? We'll have this We'll have this sale done within the next two years and he's on the roster or is this we want him signed sealed and delivered when we take over the team we know our asset is Juan Soto for well, 10 years 12 years but they're not selling in two years they're trying to sell now I know I mean so that that to me like this isn't that they're going to sell in 2025 like I, I think they want to sell tomorrow well it's yeah and they want it to hurry but there's still a lot of things that have to happen between now and then I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is a new seller of course you're not going to trade Juan Soto in August before a sale gets done but the difference is a long-term contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which is a diminishing asset. And again, I'm not saying Juan Soto's diminishing. The back half of that deal is not going to be the same value as when he's in his prime. Just like if I'm acquiring your uh, cereal factory, I know that right now it works, but you know I have, the, I have a lease. I've got all these bits of equipment I'm going to have to pay for later to fix and all these other kind of things. So that's all sort of factored in. That's a depreciating cost. Some New owners will treat that as as an investment and say, that's a bad idea. We want nothing on the books. Others will say, no, no, we need butts and seats for this ballpark. I mean, it's all, you know, uh, six one hat doesn't the other. A new ownership group likely coming in will say, of course, right now this many needs to be on the team. So he's not being traded this year. You're 100% right about that. But the long-term part of it, that's a variable that a different ownership group, it's eye of the beholder. Well, so somebody might come this. in and say, oh, we got to have them. I don't care what the cost is. Others might say, we're not paying that. Well, but but so to be succinct, I think, with what you're saying, the question is, is he worth more to the new owners not yet signed or signed? That's the essential question. And right? that's going to depend because on what kind, of an, what kind of owner it is. If they treat this as an investment, yeah. then no, they're not going to want it. It, it. They're a coffee shop. Yeah, 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 totally, like the learners do, where, hey, you print on this paper. If we print on a different type of paper, we save 14 cents. We're saving the 14 you know? cents. But what I'm hoping for and praying for, what I really want, is that we get our own Steve Cohen. We get our Cohen. We get Who's the Balmer guy that's out with the Clippers or whoever? Steve. Is that another Steve? Yeah. What's with all the Steves? The Steves are, Steves are billionaires. They Look are. that up. I okay. have no idea. Every Steve? Are there any Steves that aren't billionaires? The majority of Steves are billionaires. Okay. That's oh, my takeaway. Like 89? There's like a couple Steves that are underachieving millionaires. Okay. Yeah. But they if you're a Steve, you're at least a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that I think that checks out. So 
I want that. I want my own Cohen, my own Balmer. I want a guy that's coming in here. I'll, I'll use Bezos as my placeholder because it's just the easy name. He owns the post. He's got – didn't he buy a house here somewhere? Does he live here or does he just own like, – Like he bought well, a neighborhood. He probably doesn't live anywhere, right? He probably has like 15 houses and yeah. 23 cities. And he also – he I think he lives on Mars part of the time too now. Seriously, with a space company. Why wouldn't he? Uh, so I want that guy or someone like him to buy this team and just to win bidding wars. Now, that's probably not that realistic, but – the Mets have their thing now. They have Steve Cohen, who wants to spend. And you got to deal with him tweeting and being annoying and, and saying things he shouldn't on social media when he gets mad that the team loses four games in a row. But my goal would be that whoever the new owner is, they have their press conference, and they say in that press conference, Juan Soto's going nowhere. And then they walk down the steps from the platform. They walk right over to Boris and Soto, who are at the press conference. They hand him a blank check, and they go, fill it out. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Like, that is what I want. But I think to to an owner, it's probably more valuable to have Soto on the cheap still, not yet having signed an extension, because then you get to decide how much am I paying him. You get to right. decide if you can't pay him, you know, what prospects you want back or who, what organization or what league or division you trade him to. So not only is he not being traded, but let's say they wanted to get a deal done, which they couldn't anyway right now. I don't think it would matter because – I think you're just in a holding pattern until the new owner makes that decision. It's, there's so many complicating pieces to this. And again, this would be, I just wonder what the narrative would be, how different this world would be if they'd retain one of their guys. And I know they always, whenever we say that, they go, we paid Steven Strasburg. I, I guess I mean another one. If they paid somebody else at well, a certain point. They paid Ryan Zimmerman and Steven Strasburg all time. I still time. have like a, a radar antenna up weird thing over the shutdown that when they took care of him, I mean, this is 1,000% me speculating. Put that tinfoil hat on right now. Yeah, yeah. tinfoil hat. And it's like when they shut him down, there was like something like, hey, we're, we'll do an extension down the road or whatever. I mean, I feel dumb even saying it. But like they're, they're, he's the only guy. Now, he's also a little bit different. He's kind of a weird cat. And we're going to talk about Strauss, by the way, in one minute who's rehabbing. But, you know, maybe he is. Like one of these guys mentally who never wanted to have to go win over another clubhouse or meet new people or get to know teammates and coaches and a manager and learn a new route to a new ballpark. I mean, he is, I guarantee he drinks at the same bar by his house all the time. You know, there's three or four neighbors who see him on the same walk with his kids. Like he's that kind of dude. So maybe it's just like that was more him than the Nats. But for it to only have been him and for him to be the guy that you shut down, which was pretty unprecedented. I got a little tinfoil hat thing going there. It's not crazy to me. I mean, you know, again, remember, he signed a deal, then opted out after the World Series and signed another one. So really, they've done this a couple different times yeah. <laughs> with Steven Strasburg. But, but just let me finish the point. I wonder what life would be like had they re-signed Trey Turner. I think the conversation would be different. And I know Juan Soto's a different stratosphere than Trey Turner. Just Turner's a stud. Don't get me wrong. All-star, great to have. But there's something else about this guy that's being compared to Ted Williams. There's something else about this phenom that plays the way that he does and and, and with this joy and, and excitement and the excellence. And, you know, every time he's on a list, it's like, yeah, there's Jimmy Fox and Mickey Mantle and Juan Soto, you know, depending on your list. I wonder how differently people would feel. But it's just after last year, after you traded away the guys, and it was the right thing to do at the time, knowing you weren't going to resign people and it was time to, you know, try to rebuild the system that they've ransacked over the years to keep this competitive window open. I just wonder how differently people would feel. I, I just know, just talking to this fan base, anything involving Juan Soto not being here is seen as like the bridge too far 
despite the fact that they won a World Series just a couple seasons ago. All right, let's talk Strauss. Rehab start number two, both in Fredericksburg. We talked about his rehab outing that I went to last Tuesday when we were uh, back and on the podcast. So since then, he's pitched once. Also in Fred at their home ballpark, right off 95. If you guys haven't gone, go check it out. It's beautiful. Pitched against the same Salem lineup, and boy, did he make those youngsters look like fools. Five nearly perfect innings. This was a flip of the script, Danny. This was the antithesis of what we saw. Mechanically, supposedly the reports were way better. Completely comfortable. Throwing strikes and pelting the zone. Five innings of hitless, one walk, six strikeout baseball. This is after he didn't get out of the third and allowed three hits and four walks and three runs. He punched out twice as many, six, had just the one walk and didn't give up a single hit in his five innings. Now, I'm not throwing a party. I don't really care about the numbers. It's A-ball hitters, whatever. But after that first start, I thought, Oh, man, he's a long ways off. Mm-hmm. And I told you, I was talking to a bunch of the Nats brass that was there, and they said at least three, maybe four more starts in the minors. You watch that game and some of the highlights of him pulling the string with the change up and throwing the breaking ball, having more feel for that pitch. You can start to think about him in the big league rotation again pretty quickly. Uh, five innings, throwing the way he did, pain-free it sounds like, coming out of that start, best we can tell, not complaining about discomfort or anything. That's a really good sign. It's a great sign. And and listen, you're 100% right. Guys waving at that level, waving at his change up or, or chasing a breaking ball out of the zone or swinging a high fastball, doesn't tell you the full story. Would you know? Would Pete Alonso swing at that? Would, I don't know, you know, name your big league stud. Pete Alonso probably would. He might have. I mean, he swings and misses a lot. He's up there to, to hit nukes and take swings. Um, but you know what I mean. Like it would, Jeff McNeil staring at that. Right. Would would your, your run-of-the-mill big league hitter that owns – would Freddie Freeman have swung? Who knows? It's tough to tell. But the way the stuff looked to me out of his hand, that's Steven Strasburg again, right? The the first time it was mechanical, it was it was uncertainty. You ever, you know, you remember in um, uh, Dark Knight Rises when the Scarecrow sentences all the guys in Gotham to walk on the ice, death by exile. Love it. Those first couple of steps out there on the ice, that's what Strasburg looked like. To me. Love it sounds weird. I don't love that he did Not that. Not the death part. I love the film, and I remember the scene was pretty powerful. Yeah, so he looked like a guy that, if I throw this ball with all my emphasis, is my arm going to snap off? Is my hip going to explode? Just looked like a guy that was trying to get through it, getting his work in, right? It was very mechanical. It wasn't very smooth. This go-round, I mean, again, I'm looking at highlights here, so I'm watching the strikeout montage and a couple other moments there. It looked natural, fluid, letting his giant tree trunk legs work. And that was a, the big difference, right? When you're finishing your delivery, that's the extension. That's letting it go. And he's not 97 to 100 anymore. That's not who he is. But that 94 can certainly play up again with that breaking ball that we talked about that gets enough snap where it looks like a fastball dives down. And then that changeup that just disappears, that looked like his big league stuff. So it's not always the whole story to just know a pitching line. And that's why I've been kind of waiting and seeing what Davey had to say and report about how Strauss was feeling. I say that because Joe Ross rehabbed on Tuesday in Harrisburg the same day Strasburg made his first start in Fredericksburg. And Ross's line was actually really good. And it looked the opposite of Strauss's to the point where on the pod last week we were saying, you know, based on how they threw, it seems like Ross could be closer. Mm -hmm. Well, Ross came out of that outing 
actually left a little bit early because he felt something, was in some pain. Well, we now know Joe Ross has been shut down, and he will have Tommy John surgery, his age 29 season over before it ever started. You have to imagine with TJ coming up and looming, the recovery would take him a year from now, which would mean we wouldn't see Joe Ross if he's back in the organization and resigns and is with the team next year until the end of the season. So complete dagger for him going into a huge offseason. Dagger for the organization as well because they were really looking forward to getting him back. Ross, by the way, people forget, was the best last season that he'd been since 2016. I mean, he did some really good things. He made 19 starts, 108 innings, and he struck out um, right around 110 batters, You know, more than one per frame. Uh, walk rate was down, and he had more Ks than hits. I mean, it was just at a you know kind of a corner turning awesome season where it looked like he's ready to give you some middle to back of the rotation performances. And he got hurt, and now it's TJ, and his season is over. Stinks. When I mean, you go back to the first time we saw him, Danny, 2015, yeah. when he was just dominant. I remember, I think it was the first start at Nats Park against the Cubs. I was there, and he just shoved on them. But that year, he was like 22, and he pitched 75 innings for a really good Nats team in 2015 and struck out almost a batter per, and he had a 2.23 average against. It felt like the, the ceiling, to quote the ancient philosopher Michael Jordan, was going to be the roof. You know, it, just, it felt like that dude was going to have a, a hell of a run here. Since then, he basically had the really good 16 for the majority of a season. And then for three straight years, 17, 18, 19, after an injury— Kind of lost his way, you know, barely pitched in 18. It's, man, it's disappointing. I just feel for Joe. We know him. We got to know him real Great well dude. years ago. Couldn't be a better guy. Works his butt off. And uh, I feel for you, man. Yeah, really since 17, you touched on it. And remember, he opted out in 2020. Forgot about that. The 2020 pandemic year, he didn't pitch at all. It just feels like it's been forever since we've seen Joe Ross, a guy with all sorts of promise. And, and I know this. Last year, he was really good. When, how, when, how many starts did he make last year? I think it was close to 20 he pitched Did he last get that? Because I would have said yeah. in the teens. But Remember, he it. had like an eight-inning masterpiece. Like, he and Fetty got hot at the same time in the second half yep. of the year where they basically – you know, kind of carried the Nats in some way. He pitched, if you remember, in the World Series, he made a start against right, the Astros. Right, that spot start. That, that was one of the, you know, listen, you, you obviously felt for the guy going up against Garrett Cole, but that was one of the coolest, spontaneous moments. Yeah. I remember in Nats Park, uh, just being there, and, you know, everybody's thinking they're showing up to see Max Scherzer pitch. Find out it's not, and here comes Joe Ross thrust into duty. Hey, good luck. Good luck well, out there, Joe. And the place this, went nuts. Yeah, massive ovation when he walked out to the bullpen because by then, word had gotten around Scherzer was not pitching. And they had to make a decision, and it was like, oh, my God. Was that game six or game five? Would have been game five. Oh, no, no, sorry. Was it four or five? Because three, four, and five were here. Yeah. I think it was five. So it was. they were 2-2 in the series. They won games one and two in Houston. They came back to D.C. Mm-hmm. They lose games three and four. You and I were at both. Yep. Game five, it's like, okay. You got Scherzer on the hill. You're not going to go down 3-2. Because D.C. sports fans, the assumption was, you lose tonight, you lose all three at home, you got to go win two in Houston. That's it. Zero percent chance you win this World Series. You woke the sleeping giant. And then you find out Scherzer can't go. He can barely put his clothes on, his back tightened up on him, some weird thing that happened. And you go, holy crap, you got to be kidding me. And then it's Joe Ross. So people just got behind him. He walked out to that standing ovation. He started the game with let's go Joe Chance. It really was cool. And he pitched fine. I mean, he wasn't great or anything, but he was competitive in that game. He wasn't the reason why they lost. Obviously, they did lose. They were down 3-2. They lost all three of the World Series games here. And what happened? 
They went to Houston and yep. won both. That's right. Thank you very much. Uh, I still think about Juan Soto carrying his bat to first base in response to Alec Bregman doing that as well. Chaos, um, man. The Davey argument, the Rendon homer right after. By the way, I still haven't seen that call against that went against Trey Turner called at any other point in time in the big leagues, in college Didn't ball. Didn't get called on Trey Turner in the regular season, like the it following actually, it actually season? might have. So there, there went my hyperbole. But you get my point. It's insane that they called it there. He's the only like, person insane. I've ever seen it called against twice. It's insane. Anyway, but to Joe Ross specifically, man, it, it's it's now, you know, at 24, at 25, you go, okay, he'll rebound, he'll be back, he's still got a long career. You know, the words of Owen Wilson from, from Wedding Crashers, we're not that young anymore. I mean, that, that's what this feels like, man. I, I don't want to say that he's done. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like... This is now how many years of we're not getting the Joe Ross experience that we thought. He's coming back from something. He's working back from this. So you sort of fast forward. You know, are we talking at the end of 2022? He's making a couple rehab starts and maybe makes it back to the major leagues. God willing. It's like derailed, man. I I feel for the guy. Great dude. Uh, Joe Ross, for reference, in 2021, went five and nine. He did pitch 19 starts. 108 innings for Joe Ross. I don't know why I'm surprised it's that many. Maybe that maybe that's my memory hole. That's on me. That's basically two thirds of a season. Yeah, something like that. But it was. I mean, it was pretty solid. Like his strikeout rate was over nine per nine. It was like nine point one. His walk rate was low. Like that's really legitimate middle of the rotation type stuff. And it makes it that much more painful that he didn't stay healthy in the last year and that this has happened since. Well, he started the last game of 2019, I believe, against Cleveland. When Cleveland was actually fighting for a playoff spot, and the Nats just swept them because they swept everybody, went to the playoffs and kept sweeping people, and went to the World Series. But that's the best he looked. I remember he beat Mike Clevenger in that game. I took my kids or a couple different guys to the game. His changeup was good that day, and that was always kind of this thing he was flirting with in terms of his touch and feel. And you know, I talked to him after the game, and he was upbeat and excited. And it was one of those like, "How cool is this? We're all doing. Everyone does great right now with this team. The, the, we're all pulling the rope in the same direction." I just remember, you know, how happy he was and how in a hurry he was to get out of there because he probably had a date because he's very handsome. Mike Clevenger uh, has really annoying hair. Yeah, and a funky delivery. Yes. What what bothers you more, the hair or the delivery? Definitely the hair. I'll, any delivery you got, I'll take. Tim Lincecum picking up the mm. dollar. Uh, you, you're limmy and like your arms are all over the place, like Chris Sale. I don't really care. Clevenger's knee was above his head. Do you know what Clevenger's doing with his hair now? He no. like braids it into pigtails. I don't. I'm not okay and, with that. And each one is going over one of his other shoulders. That's not my favorite. I don't know if that made sense. So he he basically braids his hair. And then he has each braid over his shoulders, like onto his chest, basically. It is wacky what that what he's doing. But you know me, I just please cut your hair and have like a buzz cut or something uh, when you're pitching. Yes, there it is. Look at this picture. That's what he does now. Yeah, that's not great. I, what is that? I respect his stuff. He's a big league pitcher. I would just I would do a prank where I just had scissors <laughs> and like, whoa, not such a funny prank we did. We cut the pigtails off. Like those braid pigtails. I, I don't understand what that is. No longer in Cleveland, obviously. He's been in uh, San Diego after being moved. San Diego wins. By the uh, Padres to the Guardians, or, or vice versa. But the Guardians to the Padres. All right, I digress. Uh, so Ross, Tommy John surgery, out for the year. This follows Carter Keboom, who had Tommy John surgery. Yeah, bummer for, for him, too. Uh, but, you know, at least Ross, a couple of different times you've seen when healthy, legit, can do it. Keyboom, it has never happened. This is a first-round pick, big-time prospect, ultra-disappointing, 
Hasn't been able to string together quality ABs, drive the baseball, slug at all, hit for any kind of power at the major league level or even the upper minors, really. Super frustrating because I think about this all the time. I don't want to pin the last couple of years like on just a couple of guys, but imagine how different this organization would be if Victor Robles and Carter Keboom became what they were supposed to. I think about that a lot. If Robles was a all-star caliber center fielder, just an awesome player who you're kind of a franchise building block, you build everything around. And Keboom was a good, solid third baseman, say like a Kyle Seeger type dude, right? Who hits like 22 homers and bats 278 every year or something. I don't think the fire sale happened. I don't think last year is this abject disaster in the second half. I don't think they stink now. They would have actually tried to get better this offseason. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to put anything on Kibo. My point is just... Because this happens. Hitting right. on important guys is important. I, I guess that's not groundbreaking. But no, it, your, your top prospects can't fizzle out. Your top prospects like Robles, like Keyboom, especially when you make so many moves to bring in veterans and all it. that, You, it's, it's a quality over quantity thing for them. And so... You, you need those guys to develop into something. And when it didn't happen, it set them back massively. It's it's such an astute point, Grant. Because it's not necessarily, you know, you've used, there's two different, way, two different ways to use your prospects. It's to replenish your major league roster, both with them being called up and being players and consistent for you, and also as trade fodder. Jesus Cesardo got you people that helped you win a World Series. And and you can name all the other prospects that 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 came over, right? Or that that were shipped out to to generate guys that were contributors for a team that won, you know, 90 some games on average per year over the course of a decade. The guys that the, they do say we're holding on to and we're counting on you to be the next blank when they don't hit in such a major way, that kills you. It really does. Because if Keeboom had been part of some package, we never would have noticed, never would have cared. We'd, we'd go, hey, what's he up to now? Hitting 200 for Kansas City or something like he that, right? He would be, uh, you know, any uh, Nick Pavetta. Just right. a name that they moved at some point. Just another guy. But they said, you're, we're counting on you, young man, so you'll graduate. Once we've lost Anthony Rendon, you're the third baseman every day. And you hit 200. You know what I mean? It's one of those things that because of where they put their chips, losing that bet hurts for them more than it would for a team that's just graduating prospects every week. Let's talk about the trade deadline, which we're still a couple months away from, obviously, as we turn the calendar into June. But I noticed that you've got a couple of pieces here starting to heat up that might matter come the deadline. As we embark on Tuesday baseball, you and I are recording this right before first pitch against the Mets. You know Cesar Hernandez, who has hit safely for the better part of the last week, one of the league leaders in hits at this point? 295 average. Now, the OPS isn't great, but it is 712, which is above league average. He's getting on base about 35% of the time almost. He's playing a decent second base. He's actually become a decent little trade chip, I think, for the Nationals. They signed him this offseason to a one-year deal for $4 million. So someone will basically take on, for the better part of the the last couple months, you know, a little over a million bucks on a one-year contract as a rental. You could probably get a decent minor leaguer for him. I would add Cesar Hernandez to, we've talked about Josh Bell, switch hitter, power, first base, DH. Nelson Cruz starting to trend up, leading the team in runs batted in. As it gets hotter, hopefully hits more home runs. As the top guys you might be able to get a return for at the deadline, one other name I'd throw in there is Tanner Rainey. 
Rainey's off to a really strong start. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of Nats fans would prefer to keep him because you've got some control. But I, I view relief pitching as volatile year to year, hard to predict. So does Mike Rizzo, by the way. Yeah, it seems like he does as well. And on top of that, like there's nothing that you are more desperate for than reliable, good, late-inning pitching when you're rebuilding. So if you could get something decent and a team's desperate for a power arm and they'll give you, I don't know, a potential starter of the future and, and the, like a double-A arm for Tanner Rainey or something, if he's lights out until the deadline – do that. But those are the names I came up with. What do you think of that? Hernandez, Bell, Cruz, and Rainey as right now. I don't think any of them net you anything huge. You might even have to do a Scherzer-Turner thing where you like package together Cesar Hernandez and Josh Bell to even get like a top two or three prospect in anybody's system. But I think there's a return to be had for those three guys and maybe Rainey if you include him. I'd add a couple names potentially. I think Victor Rano's throwing the ball pretty well. Medium leverage situations. Again, no one's talking about a, uh, a top two or three prospect coming back, but maybe as part of a package. Maybe you're talking about shipping a couple people. The other name I would add, Hernandez and Hernandez. Not brothers, no relation. Yadiel Hernandez. You're telling me a first division club wouldn't want a good lefty bat off the bench, a guy that you could put in left field in certain matchups who's not going to you know kill you defensively? Good bat to ball. He's hitting the ball with authority. Every time he's been anywhere, he's hit. He's in his mid-30s. That's not a great rebuilding chip for somebody. I love the way he swing the bat. I love his story. I love the way he's competed. Now let him fetch you something. All right, speaking of fetching you something, I actually don't have a good transition. I was going to say, let's fetch a new topic. Uh, I was playing fetch with Trying my neighbor's dog. Trying to make fetch dog. happen. There you go. Here we go. Ready? Yeah. Speaking of fetching something. Okay. I was playing fetch with my neighbor's dog yesterday around the grill on Memorial Day. Uh-huh. It's a true story. Another thing I was doing yesterday was prepping to talk about the studs and duds of the week. Let's do that now. Zoom. All right, let's do it. Darius, you lead us off. Give us your studs of the week. So my stud of the week, I'm actually going to go with someone we just talked about, Tanner Rainey. Now, he, he puts us on for a little bit of a thrill ride whenever he is on the mound. Well said. Yeah, but it doesn't show in his stats. Three games, he's faced 13 batters, got a zero ERA over this last seven games, uh, through three and uh, three and two-thirds innings with two saves, only gave up one hit, one walk, and struck out four over this last week. So Tanner Rainey is my stud of the week. Keep hot, Tanner Rainey. He knows drama like TNT. That used to be their catchphrase. Remember that? They were trying to push that? like, we know drama. It's like, what if you just did NBA games? Rainey has a little Brad hand to him all of a sudden where he's got to put two guys on and then he just starts snapping off slide pieces and, and big breaking balls. But, yeah, he, uh, he's he been entertaining and, for the most part, has done his job here this season. Danny, who's your stud of the week? I'm going to cheat a little bit, guys. Do you know who was second over the last month in Major League Baseball? Which team in batting average? The Washington Nationals. Your Washington Nationals. It'd be funny if it wasn't them on the yeah, uh, Boston like, Loose Baseball. It's the Milwaukee Brewers. No, it's the Nationals. They are fifth in on-base percentage and 10th in OPS in the month of May. And we're closing out the month of May. So cheating a little bit. All of a sudden, this Nats offense, not consistent night in, night out, but they've banged the ball around a little bit. They still don't hit for enough power to compete uh, with some of the first division clubs, but... That offense has come alive after a really sluggish uh, April. I like that a lot. Um, so a couple. I'm thinking about a couple different routes here, but I'm going to go with. How about just the formula for their success? 18 wins this season. The Nationals have scored 135 runs, seven and a half per game, and have hit a combined 307 slash line 384.55. They've scored at least 10 runs six times this season, tied for most in all of Major League Baseball. So I'm going to say their offense occasionally. How's that? 
Uh, I'll allow it. Their offense in wins. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> uh, also, Cesar Hernandez, who I just mentioned, hit safely in 10 straight games, 16 for 41, a 390 average over that stretch. He's been awesome. He's getting on base. And Kbert Ruiz needs a little bit of love. Hitting 319, 410, 458, seven doubles, a homer, and eight RBI, and 10 walks. Couple steals as well over his last 19 games, a 319 average. How about a little love for Victor Robles? He had that big six RBI game Great with point. a masher of a home run to left field. I think Victor Robles deserves a little bit of love too. He does. And we beat up on him from time to time. Uh, but him having a two run home run is. Hey, that's a thing. By the way, we're recording this live, but I'll just tell you, Danny, just to get your reaction in real time. Uh-huh. Uh, Nats just went behind 2 nothing in the first inning. To the Mets? You're kidding me. Patrick Corbin just gave up a two-run bomb to Starling Marte. Yeah, there we go. By the way, he he might be a Freddie Freeman all-star. He is. Marte's a great player, so he belongs in, in good conversations. But Owns that dude Nats. homers off the net. He hits like six a year and like threw her off the Nats. <laughs> He just pummels them. He's really so good. So, Patty Cakes, Corbin, we said we were worried about him keeping the ball in the park. As he and got there it is. Here it is. Uh, the home runs are coming. Two runs, two hits already to start his outing. So, here's my fingers crossed that he settles in. All right, that's enough talking about a game that isn't happening while you're listening to this podcast, probably. All right, duds of the week. Darius, lead us off. All right, my dud of the week is going to be outfielder Lane Thomas. He started five games this past week. Only got one hit. That one hit was a home run. Uh, he did have uh, four walks this past week, but an 063 batting average. Lane Thomas, my dud of the week. Starting five games with an 063 batting average, no bueno. I was actually going to go with the guy that plays left field with him as well, Yadiel Hernandez, who over five games is hitting sub 200 and is, I don't want to say he's lost his job, but he was basically playing left field more than anybody else. And now it seems like Lane Thomas has supplanted him in some way, at least this week, starting more than him. Maybe matchup related. But I don't love the way he's been swinging it. Is he's cooled off, which was bound to happen. Sure. My dad of the week, Mikel Franco, hitting 192 over his last seven games, but at least he plays bad defense. And uh, every day that he's out there is a day that I get a little bit worse in the mood department. I wish I didn't have worse to see him. Worse in the mood. Worse in the mood department. I department. wish I didn't see him very He often. did get off to a really good start. No, First he did. few weeks, he was like big time for them. Yeah. He was using all fields, and I think he's now back to, I should try to pull it as far as I possibly can and miss breaking balls by six and a half feet. All right. Well, that'll do it for now, I would suppose. Hey, we feel good about this. Anything else we need to cover here? I wonder about that fetch game you had with uh, the neighbor's dog. Yeah, so, more of that. Uh, the neighbor's dog is Bo. Bo. Black Lab. Bo just came over. I was on the grill. Fiona was chilling with me. Fiona and Bo started kind of licking each other and petting each other. And you know, Fiona's doing, also a dog, by the way. D- doing what dogs do. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fiona is my French bulldog. And uh, and then Bo had this ball in its mouth. I didn't know it. It was like a really gross, slobbery, orange ball. Dropped it right at my feet, and I threw it. And I've never had a dog that's a real dog. I've always had, like, French bulldogs or pugs or, you know, whatever my mom had back in the day, like a Pomeranian-type thing. So, Danny, the idea that a dog goes and grabs something that you threw, brings it back and drops it again. Novel for you. I have never seen that. I've seen it on movies. I've seen it on TV shows. But a dog being a dog, incredible to me. So I used to make fun of, like, all the the, the foofy yuppies that had those devices. Like the scoopers that you'd pick up the ball and give them the cross stick and they'd throw it. I made fun of them. Yeah. I'm like, grab the ball. Keegan, all right, the, the, pick the it up and throw so it. Gross. But that ball is so disgusting. So dead, dead serious. That's so funny you brought that up. So I threw the ball. My neighbor then comes over because his dog has come over to my house to be mm-hmm. like, "Hey, Bo, this isn't where we live. Whatever. Come on, Bo. He's got that thing in his hand." And I'm like, "Let me get a go here. Let me have a go." 
and and so then I had to go. You feel strong, don't you? Oh my god! When you gun that thing, that yeah. ball, and I live in one of these neighborhoods where it's nubby. You know, you don't have any yard or anything, so it's like mm-hmm. little Lego has, houses dropped in like 15 feet from each other. So I launched this thing through like four backyards. So probably broke every rule where this dog is now running through like right. four people's backyards. Like seven electric fences are tripped. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And this dog is just hauling. I'm like, Bo, he covered ground like Victor Robles on a good day. Lasting's millage, very circuitous. Yep. This dog was not. This okay. dog was Denard Span when it's right. This dog was Luis Matos in Baltimore back in probably 1999, 2000. Yeah, I was going to say 01. This oh, dog one? was Corey Patterson. Kind of tracking. Sure. Track. Wall. See, See you later. Michael Regai. Anybody? Give me a good uh, center fielder who covered ground. Uh, Mike Cameron. I'm looking for, okay, I didn't specify, but that, that's a great one. And then I'd go Torrey Hunter. I'm looking for more of a national. Uh, uh, Roger Bernardino. Ooh, good the one. The shark. How about that, Darius? Give me another I one. Still think of the, I still think of the shark, by the way, making that catch in Houston where he disappeared. You know what I'm talking about? He ranged from center field behind that little jut out yes. um, where Nationals players hit home runs over that wall, like Kurt Suzuki to give him a lead in game six, for example, or Juan mm. Soto went over there. But Roger Bernardino, late, late, I think it was the ninth inning, makes the catch and disappears, and Carpenter's like, hey, we're not sure where Bernardino is. He's got it. You know, like, five, like a five-second later type deal. <laughs> That's not bad. Are we forgetting any Nats center fielders who covered grounds gap to gap? I don't think we are. I think we're pretty covered. I mean, Elijah Niger, Dukes Niger was Morgan. more of a— No, he— Niger, Niger Morgan. 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 Tony Plush. Darius. That's it. Let's go. That's it. Thank you. How many brawls did Niger Morgan start, Several. by the way? Chris Volstad and him got into it. Remember Good that? Pull on Chris Volstad. Six Thanks. seven. Chris Volstad. So tall. Big boy from the Marlins. Yeah. Him and Niger had it. Had it. You got any more, Darius? Jeez, you're just dropping them. Uh, no, I just keep thinking about the strong dog choice of the black lab that Bo is. I'm sure yeah. the, the the coat on that dog has to be beautiful, beautiful. and shiny. A little bit, you know. With any black lab, you get a little bit of the white coming in. Sure. But yeah. Bo, silly. Yeah. I, and first time I've ever met Bo yesterday. Oh, nice. They just moved from El Paso. These people. Uh, a couple weeks ago. You'd probably way too much information about them. Now you guys know about that family. <laughs> All right. So that was Bustin' Loose Baseball and also the latest from my neighborhood. Thanks for listening. And we are going to be back at it later this week. Darius will read a comment. So leave one if you want Darius to shout you out. Uh, make sure it's a five-star review and say something nice about us. Rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, listen 287 times. Thanks for listening to Bustin' Loose Baseball.